fish on. Hey, Radcast is on. Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. From the Porter's 10Cast Studio, here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Welcome to another episode of Radcast Outdoors. I'm Patrick Edwards. I'm David Merrill. And we are here today again with Miss Jess Johnson by popular demand, by the way. Oh, I did. A lot of people who've really enjoyed your episodes. Um, A lot of friends of mine who are females who are in the field were like, that was awesome. So we're very excited to have you back today. So welcome back. Oh, I'm excited to be here. That's cool. I didn't realize that was why. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank (laughs) y'all. We're going to name it Jess Johnson 2.0 without further ado. That's right. (laughs) So you were just telling me a little bit ago when we were grabbing coffee that you've been traveling quite a bit. So tell us a little bit about what you've been up to. Oh, yeah. I did that classic thing where I thought January was going to be mellow and, you know, my time to get my ducks in a row before I headed down to legislative session. And uh, that was I I lied to myself real good on that one. Um, I went down to Dallas Safari Club and sat on um, a symposium that was uh, put on by Modern Huntsman and the International Council for Game and Wildlife. And it was a symposium dedicated to talking about hunting and what the future looks like, not just in America, but internationally. And um, the what voice is relevant and echoing throughout, not just America, but internationally as well and so that was really really amazing to be a part of um turned around flew home walked into my door spent seven and a half hours in my house packed all my stuff and drove to o'neill nebraska to do a film shoot with hunt to eat um we're working on a film with shelma jun who is an amazing rock climber um who i met at a film festival two or three years ago and expressed interest in wanting to learn to hunt and she is uh, born in Korea, raised in San Francisco and New York. Um, and we got to take her on her first deer hunt. And it was amazing. It was uh, this really sort of profound experience to take a new hunter that's that new to that kind of, ex- you know, she's outdoorsy. She's a climber. Um, you know, she's she's rough and tough and can really hang. But it was it's a whole new experience with wildlife. And that was awesome. And turned around. <coughs> drove from O'Neill to Cheyenne and spent some time in the Game and Fish Commission meeting, then drove to Reno (laughs) for sheep show. Holy cow, that's a lot of windshield time. (laughs) We talked a little bit about sheep show on the last episode. Can you uh, expound on that just a little bit? Well, you know, sheep show is the large uh, international convention for the Wild Sheep Foundation, and it's their big one-off during the year. And sheep hunters from all around... That was me. <laughs> Sheep hunters from all around come, and people are raising money for this for this incredible animal. And you're surrounded by a bunch of like-minded hunters. You're meeting people that have, you know, are far more hardcore than I will ever be. And it's just it's it's p- passion in a building for one species, and it's it's yeah, manic is almost what I would call it <laughs> in a good way. <clears throat> and uh, of all the species, we talked a little bit about our passion for the doll sheep it's it seems like to me you know and i i love hunting turkeys i mean white tailor great elk is probably pretty close to top tier but sheep hold a special place in my heart they really do and you have to you know i think i mentioned in the last episode how like i was pretty new you have to be in sheep country 
to get sheep, like to like to get that bug. You have to go be there. And then once you're there, it's just your toast. <laughs> I have spoken to a few people who have gone and just absolutely despise it, never want to go back. They said it was miserable. They're like, this is crazy and stupid. And I'm like, good. Great for you. Le- more for me. I, that was definitely a running monologue in my head, but it translated into deep love. Like it was like half the time I was like, this is nuts. I'm going to die. This is not what I should be doing. And then I'd get to the top and be like, this is the best thing ever. Why? Like, how do I do this for the rest of my life? <laughs> so I want to touch on a topic that is in the news right now with mountain goats and bighorn sheep. Uh, National Park Service is having a bunch of goats killed. Um, up on Teton Pass, I believe it is. And there's a lot of controversy around that. Uh, why didn't you hunt them? You know, yeah. what's going on here? So I don't know if you have more in-depth info on that subject than I do, but I've just been reading what's in the press. Yeah, so some of, and not a ton more information, but what I know, um, and I know our, our Wyoming Game and Fish Commission tried really hard to get a hunt to work. Um, but a lot of the things that they heard was that... Uh, the retrieval of an animal after you shoot it in some of those areas would require repelling into a lot of these places to even bring the body out, even if you were hunting it. Um, my argument is, is then at least there's an option to bring the body out. But they are aerial gunning, which is not a great like thing for hunters to see. Um, mountain goats, and it, they're non-native. They have sort of come and taken over but they're non-native species and they're posing a lot of threat to the bighorn sheep herd which is native there and that is something you know the answer is that these these goats have to go that that is not disputed it's just how do we get them to go and um i know myself included a lot of wyoming hunters would really enjoy uh going out and hunting them and and taking that risk and you know but you national know, my Park Service has they. It's a. It's scary to do something in a national park with hunting, and I know they've done it, but it's it's a very scary thing to do at the national level, and they're probably wrestling with a lot of uh, uh, maybe naysayers at the higher level. I just find it interesting. They kind of made both sides extremely mad because <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, we're just going to shoot them and let them lay. Well. If you're more on the left side, that's not a popular thing, aerial gunning animals. And then if you're more on the right side and want to hunt more maybe or whatever, you're like, man, what is what is going on here? Like I'd pay them to go do yeah. that, not, you know, yeah, spend exactly. the money. Yeah, you know, and the Game and Fish uh, Commission really, I really commend them for the, they had some strong words about it. They really did act out Wyoming hunters' angst mm-hmm. around this. And I that's a pretty... We're lucky we have a commission that gets it. Um, and I, if I know them, they'll continue working towards hopefully something. So. And one counter argu- argument I heard was, well, hunters will never be able to be 100% successful on removing the whole herd that has to go. I said, well, that's, that's valid. Mm-hmm. I said, so have your helicopter hunt, but at least give me, personally me, the opportunity to go buy a tag and go for a weekend, right? Because, you know, I... I'd be motivated, highly motivated to go do that. And mm-hmm. generating, you know, you won't generate a ton of funds, but you'll generate more than you would have had you not offered a tag to start with. And I, I think they yep. could have offered a thousand dollar goat tag they for could, like they fifty could of have done a, it, more than that. And <laughs> I would, I would have bought yeah. one in a heartbeat. Heck and that's on. the thing that money could have gone to sheep conservation, sheep research, whatever you want. Uh, like in a lot of like Idaho's got a gr- great, you Idaho, know, and they just Alaska, kind of bled over from yeah. there, but. 
they're not historic in this range right. at all. And the, the bighorns, you know, especially with the, the disease transmission that we're worried about, the bighorns really are priority one. So what's the research on that as far as <coughs> have they found a connection between disease transmission between goats and sheep? I think, you know, I don't know this science well enough to like give you an answer. I, my guess is that yes, um, if they're going to such measures as helicopter hunting mountain goats, they have figured that this is a big threat. Um, but I don't actually know. Hmm. Um, I, I can come I back always, on the next episode yeah. and tell you. I'll go do some research. I always <laughs> read about these things, and I'm always intrigued about why. You know, like, what what are we doing this for? What's the point? You know, and so this one was one that kind of, it's like, oh, man, this is a lose-lose <laughs> in my opinion. And, so. and that's where they, they misstepped is, I mean, all of us here in the room who I would say are somewhat in the know have no real clue of what's going on. If they would have been a little bit better b about communicating, this is the scientific reason why this needs to happen this way today, mm -hmm. there wouldn't be this big pushback. Yeah. And there's, you know, that's, that's a, that's an agency level issue. Um, and I would say it is rampant across federal agencies and state agencies alike is that when budgets are tight, the first things that get cut are the communications because that's the quickest way to hamstring an agency is to shut down their communications. And then people get pissed because they don't know what's happening. And so it's, you know, I have sympathies with the National Park Service. I have sympathies with even, you know, the BLM, National Forest. Like, all these guys are working on a, like, shoestring budget. Um, and meanwhile, you know, we just keep cutting it out from underneath them. So, like... Oh, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not ready to light the torch and carry the pitchfork <laughs> up there. But I do want to know why I wasn't given the opportunity to go chase one when I've been putting in for tags for years after years yeah. after years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm in... I'm, I'll stand in that line with you. <laughs> yeah. That was a big a big thing that I saw from hunters <laughs> just watching the comments come in where I would have paid, you know, $5,000 to go do this. You know, I've been putting in for 10 years, 15 years, some of them even longer. And I'm like, yeah, that would have been, that would have been good. Well, we could have figured that out. I'm wondering if they, like, if this discussion is closed or if it, there's still things happening. Um, I know, like, our Commissioner Schmid, Mike Schmid, um, has, has been really heavily involved in a lot of this, and has, he pushed so hard for this to be a hunt. Um, and just didn't happen this time. Maybe it's something we can keep working towards, and if we just sort of behave ourselves in the sense of, like, we, we voice our opinions but not in a bad way, So um, there's we'll there's a, a similar correlation between, you know, these goats and what's happening right now and wolves. You know, the year that uh, wolves got shut down hunting in Wyoming – what a lot of people don't know or don't understand is the year that we had the wolf hunt, we took X amount, right? Mm -hmm. The year the wolf hunt was closed through predation and damage, government agencies still went out and took X amount of wolves. And it was very similar, you know, like apples to apples comparison of numbers. I don't have them in front of me, but let's say the first year we had a hunt, they, f they harvested 50 wolves. The next year through, you know, depredation on ranches and, and anything else, government agents went out and took another 45 50 wolves so when all of a sudden somebody says oh we're saving the wolves we're not having a wolf hunt no you just took what was a paid for conservation hunt mm -hmm. by hunters you took that away and then you took tax dollars and gave it to the government to go do the exact same job that was already getting done it's an it's always amazing it's fascinating to me how that is more um palatable i think for a lot of people that are against hunting you know i think having a, somebody in a uniform go out and s surgically do it is I, I understand it because you know then you have like the hunter that like 
goes and kills a wolf and butterflies it and puts it on top of his Jeep and parks it in Jackson Square for nine hours. Because that also doesn't do us any favors. None. So, like, you know, we kind of shot ourselves in the foot on that one where we, we, we behaved bad enough that, like, I mean, and it, our, our behavior around the wolf um, informed a lot of the pushback and argument I heard around the grizzly bear hunt from people that didn't want to hunt because they weren't on board with hunting. It was, it was the respect issue that I heard a lot of. And, um, you know, that'll take some time. That just takes sort of policing our own community and reminding folks that even if it's a predator, like have, have a little respect for the life and maybe we'll get to the point where we can have wolf hunts without people hunting other people down for it. So I would, I would, I posit that, you know, we have 5% of U.S. population is avid pro-hunting, right? I would say somewhere in there we have 5% that is just avid anti-hunting. Everybody else kind of falls in the middle, like, you know, on one side or the other. But for the most part, they're like unaware, uninformed, and they could care less Mm kind of either way. And as a hunter, my actions are going to help motivate those people either towards hunting or Or away. away and it's 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 at, you're very it's an 80% i think they they have a statistic of like americans are sort of near he, neither here nor there on hunting like don't really have an issue don't know not like much about it aren't going to yell about it and then there's pretty there is a around the same size as the hunting community they're vehemently against it so, and and loud about it yeah so there's a lot of policy things coming up on the horizon for hunting and fishing across the nation, not just here, but I know you're involved in some of that. So can you tell us some of the issues and things that we'll be seeing here shortly? Uh, Wyoming wide yep. yeah, so our legislature is going to convene here in what is that February 10th, Monday, February 10th, and they will run for five weeks in their budget session and it's going to be a you know we're we're not. We're in a bust year. It, the budget's going to be a tough one, and it's going to be an argument. And finding money for anything is going to be—you're going to have to validate where it's coming from. Um, we have a couple things in the governor has a request in his budget for the Wyoming Wildlife Natural Resource Trust Fund, which is WWNRT. You'll hear it a lot, and this is a fund that um, helps with conservation easements. It helps with like wildland uh, rehabilitation. I mean, it's a great conservation program. Um, that that hasn't been fully funded in probably since its inception. Um, and so there's an ask in there. Part of that is like this is also a fund that we could pull some funding from for wildlife crossings, which is hot right now as far as like headlines and, and trying to fix this problem of hitting deer on the road and elk on the road and, and Jackson moose <laughs> um, and to keep our citizens safe and the folks that are on our roads here in Wyoming. But so this fund is is a pretty amazing uh, opportunity for us, and I think the ask is for somewhere in the vicinity of twelve million in there. I could be wrong on that one; don't quote me on that one. But uh, having that in there to uh, work with and to to pull pull grants from for projects all around the state that are bettering places for hunters, bettering places for wildlife, um, helping the private landowners make sure that their places stay nice and. You know, and there's there's a lot of arguments about easements, and some of them are correct, but this is what we have right now. Um, and so that will be likely a, a large thing that I am having to deal with down at legislature. And then we also have a couple bills that are brewing right now, and one is the uh, Migration Corridor Designation Bill. And it's, uh, for what what I do, it's a problematic bill in the sense that, like, 
what we're figuring out with migrations and the science behind it and everything that we have done um, to date to figure out, you know, to map where these deer are going or these antelope or elk. Um, now we have to figure out how we keep those intact. And that is understandably a super tenuous um, need to have a lot of folks at the table, a lot of voices, you know, coming to an agreement on how this is done. Statute, so when you pass a bill, it puts something into statute. Statute's inflexible. It's it's something that, you know, once it's in a bill, it's kind of hard to change. Yeah, you can run amendments, but then you can only run them, you know, once a year, and it can't bend and be flexible if there's science that changes. It can't bend and be flexible if the landscape changes. And to, to touch on the science part of the wildlife crossings, that's pretty well, you know, set in concrete now that where we've done that mm -hmm. in, in this state and other states, you know, the population, especially mule deer, where we've put those wildlife crossings in and put the deer fencing in, the populations rebound almost overnight. They, yeah, it's they, this connected habitat. You know, migration is what keeps our wildlife what it is here in Wyoming. It's why we have the really big mule deer in the northern part of the state on the west side. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's they, that's why we have that is this phenomenal uh, thing that this deer stands up and walks 150 miles back and forth twice a year. And, uh, but, so we have a bill. It's um, setting something in statute. It's, it's, I think, not the place to have this discussion. Um, and where we're coming from is we are very supportive of Governor Gordon's executive order that he is working on. And he had a uh, migration task force all speaking of all those voices at the table, they were at the table. They sat down, they worked through it, they gave recommendations to the governor. This draft um, executive order came out, and now they're working on finalizing it. And an executive order is is not in perpetuity. It it's flexible. It can change. It can you know work with the science as we have it. And you know our governor's done an amazing job in reaching out and and. The, the folks that were sitting on these committees or on this task force was they all they worked together they actually came to a place where they made agreements and it was you know it wasn't just conservation it was a hunter and it was an ag it was you know oil and gas it was folks from a pretty broad stretch of needs on a landscape that sat down and said this is the best way forward um, so we're very supportive of that executive order and sort of hoping we can take that migration bill and um, not see that introduced <laughs> but uh if it gets introduced we'll, we'll talk more about that later <laughs> on how we deal with that but yeah our governor did a great job with that and um i hope that's the beginning of a legacy that he's going to keep going cool well we all want to see you know wildlife perpetuated and, and move forward and you know like we, we touched on a few things as far as you know hunter perspective out in the field but i, I want to back up just a little bit and get your perspective back to this this new hunter you just took this other person mm -hmm. right and had their first deer hunt and i can remember mine but it's it's so long ago that the memories have kind of you know faded a little bit what are some of your maybe insights as a female hunter that maybe we could change in the hunting industry or or the old boys club to maybe make it more inclusive mm -hmm. you know i where we were with um it's even, you know, I know we talked a little bit about it, even the gear. Uh, Shelma was borrowing a gun, and it fit her pretty well. But, you know, when you're, she's my size. And I, I, I shoot a Weatherby 6.5 um, Creedmoor, and 
the Lady Camilla. Like, it fits me like a glove. But I needed a rifle that was built for a woman that was a little smaller. And, um, you know, I've picked up my dad's rifles before, and I can shoot them. You know, it's not that I can't shoot them. It's just they don't feel like a tool that fits. And, um, you know, getting getting the options out there so you have a tool that feels good in your hands and you don't feel like I'm playing with my dad's toys <laughs> kind of because it's such a big gun or you know the the gear side of it is is always a huge thing but when you look into the community you know Shelma came to this for the food you know she she is a meat eater and has you know takes issue with how some of the like large scale livestock is dealt with in the world. And so made the choice that she, if she's going to be eating meat, she should know where it comes from. And I think that was a really incredible and brave decision, you know, growing up entirely out of the hunting community. And until we had met, um, she had told me that like hunting was, there was not a voice from the hunting community that spoke to her. It was too in your face, you know, it, it felt like, uh, she used a word, I think it was like a, a conqueror mindset when she was looking at the hunting community rather than like a relationship with landscape and um, prey. And it was a, I get that. I get, I've been on the other side of that looking in and it, it can look maybe a little rough around the edges. But having her and, you know, we were in a wall tent, we had some great folks around us and we would be talking conservation and like love of landscape and the land that we were on had been in a family for a couple generations and hearing that story and, and uh, how sort of precious that place was to his family and how he saw that, um, you know, I think it really spoke to her in a different way. And the other side of it um, that I thought was really interesting is, you know, she, she shot her first animal on this and uh, had death is not quick all the time. Um, she made a very good shot and this deer went a little ways and kicked for a little bit and then passed, you know, it was seconds. It was a very good shot. And in the grand scheme of things, I mean, mother nature is very cruel, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, oh it, yeah. W winter starvation <laughs> is not, is not a 30 second death throw. It's months yes. and months and months. But you know, I, this deer piled up a little bit behind a brush and I had, uh, my binoculars on it and was watching it and she was so overwhelmed by, I think, even just making the choice to shoot something. I was There was a part of me that was thankful that this deer piled up a little bit behind the brush and she did not see the death throes. Um, and then she walked up and had this very profound uh, grief and melancholy, but not like not a, not from a sh place of shame, just like a place of thanks and dealing with everything that, you know, this deer's life meant to her and what it felt like to take it. And um, my favorite part was that I, I asked her, you know, she wanted to keep the hide, so we skinned her, and I, I did nothing. I held legs, and I talked Shelma through it, and she skinned and butchered her entire deer for her first deer, and she didn't put a hole in the hide once either. That was amazing. That um, is amazing. But it, she, I talked with her beforehand about the time, you know, when, a, when an animal, you walk up on it, and it's still an animal, and it still feels like it has some, some gravity there, something there. And then at some point, you know, as through the butchering process, it starts to feel like meat and less like a life. And it's a very, you know, you can't really explain that. She was like, when you were telling me that, I was like, oh, that sounds like kind of weirdly detached and then she was going through it she's like I'm beginning to see this like it's you know as she's pulling off parts it starts to become meat and you're putting it in the snow and um 
And then we had the opportunity the next day, uh, one of the guys who was filming shot his first deer. Uh, he'd shot antelope before, but shot his first deer. And it was a, Shelma got to see, I think, the difference between sort of like the reverence of a first time. And there's always reverence. It's always respect. But then, you know, you have a deer down. It's cold. You kind of like get in there and get it done. And, you know, it, it can look a little uh, irreverent when you're butchering and pulling legs and things like that. And so she got, she saw both. And I, I definitely saw that her get a little uncomfortable with the second one. Um, and it wasn't like against it. She was just like having to process all of this in a 48 hour time period, having never been around hunting or anything before that. Um, but I'll be really interested to talk with her. Part of this film project is, uh, she, I am teaching her to hunt. I think her sort of crowning goal is to go on an archery elk hunt, which is why I was like, this is going to take a couple of years. <laughs> and, uh, she's teaching me to rock climb because I'm, I've entirely new I've been once in my life and I didn't dislike it I just there's only so many hobbies you can have and so and we um, have some good climbing opportunities right here outside of Lander yeah. right side out of Dubois so Six Canyon yeah. it's one of the top destinations around yeah. so uh, it's been a really yeah. cool she, Chelma was a she's a powerhouse of a woman and she's eloquent and well-spoken and she processed feelings very quickly and very eloquently on a first hunt and um you know keeping her it was like I brought all my gear. I just outfitted her in the warmest stuff that I owned. So she was comfortable. You know, we had snacks. We had camaraderie. We would come back to the wall tent and, you know, sort of brief on the day and talk about, like, how she was feeling. Was she stressed? You know, she had an, an opportunity on the first day to shoot and chose not to. And we sort of talked through that. And it was uh, having that community around that support and the ability to just, like, I mean, if she didn't want to shoot, we didn't want her to shoot. And and to have that be okay was, I think, part of the success. I think there's one thing to really uh, latch on to there to really, you know, it or transcends just this one hunt is whether you're taking, you know, because I forget I've been doing this since, I mean, I was a little boy. I, I've been out and had the experience of being cold and not having the right gear and having the cotton pants on, right? <laughs> So when we bring somebody new along, whether it's one of our own kids or whether it's a newbie to the sport, man, woman, age is irrelevant, you know, as kind of the mentor, you've got to make sure that this person is warm, comfortable, fed, right? And when it, th they're going to let you know, hey, I'm, I'm kind of done for the day. Mm -hmm. And once you get this fire lit in you, you're like, no, we're going to hunt till dark and we're going to go get it done. Some people who are just new to this are like, well, we've been out here for a couple hours. Can we be done for the day? And you just need to be. You just got to be like, yeah, sure. Yeah, let's let's go. go to the wall tent. <laughs> let's have some backstrap from yesterday. Let's sit around a fire and, you know, tell some stories. And the whole experience comes together then. So you got you to gotta really check those expectations at the door and make sure you're meeting those basic needs. Yeah. And I, I think even the shooting expectation is part of that of, you know, I, I can't, a lot of people. And, and it's because we're so excited, you know, you have that like, shoot, 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 shoot. And that's the worst thing you can do, even to an experienced hunter. Like, I'm more likely to turn around and deck someone that's telling me to shoot than like to actually <laughs> shoot the animal. <laughs> I'm guilty of being the guy there like, okay, shoot, shoot, come on, shoot. <laughs> the, the one thing I will say that it's good to do is to tell them if it's a good shot. Like, it, that was something where Shelma turned to me and she's like, is this an ethical shot to take? And I was like... This is a very good shot. She's She was 60 yards, quartering on just a little bit, but about broadside. And, you know, just saying, like, yeah, I would take this shot. Now, with archery, quartering you to towards you, to. yeah. no. But with rifles, you're yeah. okay. 
Exactly. And, you know, you just got to give them, you know, like if that was me, yeah, I would take that shot. If you want to, please feel free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things you talked about, I think is important is understanding when the animal goes from that majestic creature to meat and that transition period as you're working on them. For me, I tend to see them more as meat when I'm hunting, but that's just because I've done it for a long time. And that's my purpose is I, for me, it's feeding my family. And so I do it for the enjoyment. Sure. But ultimately I want to put meat in the freezer for the wintertime. Like that's a big priority for me. I've gotten hungry glassing. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, um, I remember when I was, it was my first hunt and I killed my first antelope and I had that kind of experience of, oh man, I killed something big, you know, and its eyes are looking at me and it kind of shakes you up just a little bit. Mm -hmm. But once you start doing the process of taking it apart and seeing the different cuts and, you know, having people talk you through it, I think it's good to have that because the people at the grocery store don't get that opportunity to understand and appreciate that animal as much as you do. The pursuit is also a big deal that you pursued that animal you, you got that animal yourself. You cut that animal up yourself. You have a lot more buy-in and ownership of the process of that animal. And like last night, we had antelope stroganoff, which was awesome. That's amazing. And it's just that much more enjoyable because you know that you're the one who got the meat. It's a, the, what you can take off an animal too, I think for a new hunter that doesn't, you don't quite see what it transfers into like meat pounds. And then when you're starting to pull off all the edible pieces and you take neck meat or rib meat or, uh, you know, and we were, we went so far as we pulled call fat out and I was talking to her about the lace fat and what you can do with that and um, the heart and the liver and the tongue and, you know, all these things. And you just like lay them out. We had a phenomenal uh, shot of all the meat put out on the snow and um, it was I think that's when it clicked, you know, to look at that and be like, wow, like that's going to feed me for this whole year. Like, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm remiss. There's, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg said a while ago, he was going to only eat protein that he himself procured. And he, he said he had to dial that back a little bit, but you know, we have this big movement and push of hormone free grass fed, you know, cage free well, when you go out and harvest that mule deer or that elk or that antelope or that turkey, <laughs> it's already hormone-free grass-fed. You know what I mean? So I've heard the pushback of, well, why don't you just go to the store and, and buy your meat like everybody else where no animals were harmed in making it? And I'm like, wait, wait, hold on. Wait a second. You're, you're just hiring a hitman to go do the bloody work for you. And you're, you're trying to pretend that your hands are clean and mine are dirty, right? Where, you know, at least I have the gall to go out and not hire a third-party hitman and go do it myself. And it ensures, you know, that, a, that it's done with care and that there's, you know, there's some ceremony around it. I, I don't know anybody that doesn't kill an animal and have a little moment of thanks. And, you know, that feeling in the heart that you get that little clinch of like, you know, this is, this is, and, and even when it's a huge success and it's something that you've been in it and doing it a while, there's always just a half second that you have that like, thanks. And I don't know that that happens. You know, I, I ensure that it happens when I'm the hunter. I, from, and you know, I try and eat only meat that I procure, but I certainly eat hamburgers and you know, that I just understand that someone else may or may not have had that. And I just make sure that my animals have the respect. One thing I picked up, and it wasn't my original idea, but I started taking local vegetation 
and placing it in the animal's mouth and kind of, get, you know, as my own little ceremony, I like to go up on my own usually. And, you know, you see on TV, everybody's jumping and hooping and hollering and it's excited. For me, it's a little more reverent and a little more humble of, you know, this is a life and this is a, you know. It's a, uh, it's a, I think that actually comes from a German, it's a, called a Lietzebissen, the last bite. Um, and there's actually like a tradition, an old Germanic tradition around it. I just f- like went down a rabbit hole on traditions on hunting with, uh, that's the only reason I have any clue about what that is. I went to my uh, friend's mother who was born in Germany and was like, how do you pronounce this? It's a very, it's a, I mean, for me, it's really kind of put an ending to that. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. great ceremony and it really, you know, you, you tell the animal thanks for your life and then you do the best you can to remove that meat care for that meat and then you know the, the last step in that is when you come over for dinner or when my neighbor comes over or when we have a barbecue and I put that back strap or that tenderloin or just burger on the grill and I'm like hey there's one more reminisce of this this is food it was a the sheep hunt you know that happened this last fall and the doll sheep I you know we had we split the meat and I had about a half a sheep and um Bridget and I had talked about what this meant you know this was such a huge opportunity and to share doll sheep meat with people um was really special but we also made it so like when we ate it it was in community it was talking around this like amazing place that this animal came from this life and it was always with other people you know I never ate it we I think the last piece of sheep meat um was with a friend of mine in Jackson and uh I think he said he's going to make shepherd's pie out of it. It's a, it's a roast part. Um, but that, that like thing of being able to share it with people, you get to bring some of the mountains back and some of this life back and build more community with it. They call it, what is it like venison diplomacy, you know, mm-hmm. where you just, you come back, you don't ever come back from the grocery store with a T-bone and sit like, go to your friend's house and be like, I bought this for you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But you do come back from the mountains and hand someone a piece of doll sheep. And it is an entirely, it's a, it's this different thing. It's kind of like in fishing too, the communal fish fry or smoking of fish that really brings people together. And then stories start to roll out of fishing trips and backpacking trips and all these different things. One of the big things we have in our family is the when you hit your possession limit of walleye, you call up people and you have people over and eat, you know, and you, you do a big fish fry or, you know, if it's trout, you, you smoke up a bunch of fish and you get together and you eat that. We typically do both at the same time (laughs) because it's just so good because you have the appetizer and then you have the walleye, but that sense of community is really important, whether you're an angler or a hunter. And it's really cool when you caught it all or, you know, hunted and procured it yourself that way. Either way, it's just so much more exciting. And I'm sure like with bird hunting and the same kind of thing, but when you get community together, it makes it that much more impactful, you know, getting to build those relationships. I love this, the stories, you know, you touched on like how, you know, when somebody brings a piece out, you, you, you always tell the story of the hunt. You tell a story of how this came to be in your possession. And, um, you get to relive a lot of that, but you also like through our stories, oftentimes there's people that don't hunt or haven't hunted, or maybe are thinking about hunting that are come over for dinner and are a significant other, or maybe they're just a friend that you reached out to and wanted to share this with. And then you get to expand that horizon even more by like, you know, we've been, the hunting story has been something we tell around campfires and we've been doing it since we were humans. Um, and what I love about that is, is it's the story of the hunt. It's this experience. And what 
inevitably comes out of that is the reverence of the animal. Um, one of my favorite things is when you look at like cave art and how prehistoric humans depicted wildlife and spent so much time etching into rock details, you know, with the bison, the curved horns or, or antlers that had points or things when you're scratching in a rock and, and then you look at how they depicted the humans and their little stick figures. It was like we took our time to tell the story of the animal and we've done it forever. And when it comes out around a piece of backstrap or whatever it is, um, it that's our it's just translated from cave walls now into our Instagrams and everything else. I you know, growing up reading outdoor life and, you know, field and stream and wanting to become, you know, Chuck Adams was my hero, right? <laughs> I want to be a, a wilderness elk bow hunter. Uh, going to Alaska, I loved Alaska, but I left Alaska because I didn't get enough elk hunting every fall, <laughs> which, you know, most people think I'm a little nuts. But I'm considering going to Alaska for a couple of years to get the sheep hunting bug out. <laughs> <laughs> Go, but but you'll you'll quickly realize that, just like I did, that I need a little more elk hunting and screaming in my life. So I don't know how to, you know, transition this into to words is that you know I'm starting right now planning my September archery elk hunt and my whole year the whole calendar everything revolves around archery elk season when it's over it's like okay get a new calendar day one you know how many more days till we get to do this again same I I just wait and ache for September 1st (laughs) see mine's a little different I look forward to the hunting but I look forward to the fall fishing because all you guys are out hunting, <laughs> so I get the bodies of water to myself. Um, but no, that's that's a good point. I did want to ask you about something, um, you know, young ladies that are out there that are kind of on the fence, because um, I've talked to a few since your episode, but um, kind of, you know, what, what would you say to them about this coming season? Because they still have time to put in for tags and different things, and what would you recommend and what would you say to them for especially those living in Wyoming? Well, the nice thing about Wyoming is our general tags, our over-the-counter tags, are phenomenal. And um, where if you're in a lander area, you have a lot of access with general tags. Um, and if you're wanting to hunt, pick pick a pick your battles. You know, look for a for a doe whitetail in a place or or a doe antelope that are tags that are easy to draw. Like I. I I got I, I say this because I approached it very backwards. My first elk hunt, I drew an area thirty eight elk tag. That was my first ever archery elk hunt, and the that was an added level of stress where like I had all these people telling me that this was a tag that was really good and it was super hard to draw. And as a new hunter going into that season, there was an element of stress of like God, I better like produce something out of this, um, and. It turned out amazing. You know, I couldn't have asked for a better experience, but understanding that likely getting into hunting, having a soft entry in the sense of like having a tag that is over the counter and doesn't cost you an arm and a leg in a place that has access. So you want to go and you don't have to work very hard to get in there. Um, And a place where hopefully, you know, you can find a mentor or start talking to people. If you're really wanting to hunt, one, if you do, reach out to me, and if I know anyone, I can connect you with people that will be willing to mentor, or I am willing to do it myself. But the other side of that is, like, just start talking about it. If you want to do it, if you start talking, Wyoming has a ton of hunters in it, and a lot of us are, you know, pretty okay people. <laughs> um, so that kind of just 
give yourself realistic expectations and you know if you're wanting if if you're wanting to rifle hunt start shooting a gun now so you're comfortable with it if you're wanting to bow hunt wait another season and start shooting now (laughs) (laughs) thank you for that take some time yeah take time you know i i bought my first bow in may march and uh practiced every day with it and hit my first archery season and chose not to hunt with it because i didn't and that was my feeling make check yourself and how you feel there i didn't feel ready and i spent the next year practicing and went in and after that shot a three by four mule deer and a six by seven elk in the first season of bow hunting so maybe waiting is good and on the accuracy portion, whether it's archery or rifle, you know, get you an eight inch pie plate mm-hmm. and I don't care if it's five feet or 5,000 yards, keep every, every round in that pie plate and then don't push your limits when you go out in the field. I would go so far as to say, take that eight inch pie plate, draw a tiny little X on it and shoot for that tennis ball size. Cause mm-hmm. that aim small, miss small. That means, you know, if you're aiming for a tiny little thing, your misses are going to be closer together as opposed to if you're just aiming for the pie plate and you miss the pie plate you miss everything yeah and it can make a real mess if you do actually kill the animal and trust me if you're <laughs> gutting an animal that's been gut shot it's not not it's a not fun enjoyable. experience so or it can lead into the the wound and miss and yep. and the heartache that all of us have had to deal with on that end yeah you definitely don't want them getting away and dying slowly that's Especially one of the worst feelings yeah, you want it to be successful, and I, I think one of the things um, that maybe you can talk about more is there's a lot more women's hunting organizations and women getting other women into the field, so talk about that a little bit. Well, you know, and it's it depends on what you're comfortable with. Um, what, I think what no one woman is the same. Some, you know, I went out with a man, and it, I had a great experience. Um, some women will want to go out with women, and they'll have a great experience, and uh some women will want to go out alone and they'll have a great experience. Uh, but the opportunity to have the diversity in that choice. So, so there's a lot of awesome programs like the bow, um, bow program, which is becoming an outdoors woman that, uh, game and fish helps partner with and run through. And they've actually just started a, uh, program that's called beyond bow that then takes the people that are coming from this Becoming Outdoors Woman program, which has, like, how to shoot and all, you know, how to fish, all these different, like, sort of intro things, and then taking that that step further, which is, as a mentor, you know, you you have to introduce them to it. You can't just leave them hanging after that. You then have to kind of string that along and put that together into what it means to be out and hunting. And um, at, at some point, you let them go, and you, like, part of hunting is just making your own mistakes and figuring out from it. But getting him to that point where that's comfortable. Where um, you can comfortably ask the question. Yeah. But at some point in time, you do have to say, okay, I'm going to have to <laughs> yep. spread my wings and take on some responsibility here and say, this is I'm doing this for this reason. It's the difference between I'm learning to hunt and I am a hunter. And it doesn't mean that you've killed an animal. It's that confidence of like, I am a hunter as I am responsible for my own mistakes. <laughs> and um, as I am learning to hunt, that the responsibility I think still ways on the mentor at that point to make sure that things are going right um and so you know these women's programs are amazing and these great connections um also to like wanting if if you don't want to go alone like even just a person that's at the same level as you are to go out and make those mistakes together and to learn together and have that and um you know I still go out with girlfriends now and we scare a lot of elk away giggling but (laughs) we also have a great time and um 
I was 14 when my mentor took me bow hunting. He said, hey, you get a bow. I mowed lawns all summer to to buy that first bow, right? And I went with him to his family ranch and hunted for the whole, we had like five-day hunt. I didn't come home with anything, right? But that lit a fire of, you know, I have to go back next year and I have to prove that I can do this and now I'm going to practice all year with the bow. And, you know, so I was fortunate enough that I was young when my mentor took me, but I still go bow hunting with that mentor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that, um, the, you know, so easy with archery's obviously that's where the passion is, I think, on, for both of us here. But uh, looking at uh, the right equipment for what you want to do. Um, if you want to be a bow hunter, but you also want to put meat on the table, do both. Get a rifle, too. And and so the stress is not on the bow hunt. And, and back to, uh, you know, when you go to get that rifle, don't get your boyfriends or your dads or you know, don't get the big 300 Magnum that you can't shoot well. Don't overgun go, yourself. Don't over And don't overbow yourself, yeah. right? I've seen men and women that have, you know, if they would show up with a five pound <laughs> lighter bow or maybe, you know, instead of having the 300 caliber, maybe have a 270, you know, caliber, something like that, where that's a little more manageable recoil or a, mm-hmm. a bow they can actually accurately shoot, you're going to do a lot better at harvesting, you know, if... Yes, we, you know, let's, let's just say you get a 243, right? Which mm-hmm. is kind of middle of the road, medium sized caliber. You're not going to be harvesting elk at 900 or 1,000 yards with that. But if you get the 300 wind mag that you possibly could do that, most of those people I see show up, they can't shoot that rifle at 100 yards accurately. Mm-hmm. So make sure you've practiced with your equipment and that you're being, your expectations are, are realistic. Yeah. And, you know, don't let the industry tell you that you have to have like the most of something. You don't have to have the biggest gun. You don't have to have the heaviest weight draw on the bow. I, you know, I started with a 40 pound bow and just got good at drawing and figured it out. And I am at a 65 pound bow now. And I'd like I would never go up from there like my that is what my frame and my body can handle and I'm accurate and I'm comfortable and I can draw it over and over and over and over again if you have a bow that you can only shoot five times you are overbowed yeah I think it's important to have the right gear like you said so what what would be some gear recommendations not just like with the you know bow or the gun but what else should you take along if you are going to spend money in the first year the thing you should spend money on is good boots. Um, you know, camo can come later. It's great and whatever, but good boots and a good pack, um, if, especially if you're hunting in Wyoming. If you're if you're doing closer hunting, the pack is less important. But, um, you know, for what I do, like if I didn't have good boots and uh, for women, um, Danner makes really great women's boots. Irish Setter makes really great women's boots. Um and and they're they're not that kind of boot that's going to put a huge hole in your pocket, but they're good and they're going to last. And if they last through one of my seasons, that's a good boot. <laughs> yeah, and really good socks to go with those. Really boots. good socks. Yeah, and, and don't like like don't go into season with new boots. Buy the boots a month or two beforehand and take them on some hikes. Walk through a couple streams, get them broken in, because then you're going to hit season and you won't have the blisters unless you don't like your feet and then you can just get brand new boots and go out into the field (laughs) that was uh (laughs) that was an amazing thing to like uh we were talking at the sheep show about rookie mistakes that guides see and people people coming up with brand new boots on a sheep hunt was like the main thing (laughs) and it will destroy your feet if you don't break in your boots before you go huh david (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) 
But but don't be so cheap that you show up with your work boots that have holes in them and are steel-toed, and the first creek you cross, you have wet feet for the rest of the day. I may have done that once or twice. <laughs> yeah, it's that happy medium. Um, good boots, gearwise. Uh, you know, I think getting things that you are – find things that, that bring you comfort, you know, because if you're going to be out there and hunting all day, like, yeah, bring – a thermos of hot cocoa if you want to, or find snacks that are nourishing, have energy, and you like. Um, I always make the mistake of like, uh, <laughs> like grabbing a couple things that I have like had sitting somewhere forever and like ending up with like six cliff bars and being like, okay, well, this is going to get me by, but I'm not going to be happy about it. Um, there's a bunch of uh, things out there to help with that though. I, uh, Backcountry Fuel Box does this uh it's 35 bucks a month and you get like a shoebox size of backcountry snacks and uh like good for you tasty variety there's always a uh, dehydrated meal in there and so if you are doing this throughout the year you just dash those up for hunting season um and you have this like plethora to pull from um so there's like a lot of options out there to make it a little easier because i also, you know, going into season, if you're trying to buy a bunch of snacks and you have gear and you've just bought a gun and all this stuff, I mean, it's, it is pricey. It can hit your pocketbook. So spreading it out over the year, figuring out what you're going to need and what you're okay with getting by with for that first season. You know, most of us have enough warm clothes here in Wyoming that you can get by on that first season. And, you know, just make sure the boots and make sure you're hydrated. That was the other thing. And ask questions. You know, I, I know when I've taken newbies or guided clients or whatever, you know, if you're a little cold that, at night, ask, you know, just speak up and say, hey, I need another blanket. My, my sleeping bag isn't sufficient, right? And just being willing to, because I'm, I mean, down to the fact that, you know, maybe ask your neighbors, your hunting buddies, hey, do you have a youth model 243 I could mm-hmm. borrow for this one season instead of having to invest in that rifle to go see if you really want to do it. But in, in the information technology age, all this information's out there, right? There's a hundred forms out there, but just start with asking somebody that you know that is already doing this because I know I'll share all my information that I have with anybody that asks. And yeah, you'll hear 900 different ways to do it right and pick a couple that work for you. You know, look, going into the sheep hunt, that was all Bridget and I were doing was asking, like, we had this really awesome guy, Riley Riley Pearson, who's big sheep hunter, um, well-known around the sheep show arena, and he had gone on this hunt the year before and he sent this awesome email that was like, Hey, I don't know. You guys seems like this is really cool. I've been hearing a lot about this hunt that you two are going on. Let me tell you how I like went through it. And he went everything from like step-by-step on like, you get into Norman Wells, you need to get here and do this with this like hotel, you know, checking out, um, the meat and getting the meat ready to fly home to the States, like everything. He went just step-by-step and it was the coolest thing that some random stranger did for us that was so helpful and so that's another thing for like if you are a hunter and you see someone going into things whether it's their first season or it's a sheep hunt and you've been there and you have tips and tricks like man reach out because we we share that knowledge and and I can't tell you I'm always finding new ways that I like to do stuff or you know new ways to put my bow in my backpack and things like that (laughs) so you know, we we talked just a little bit, you know, this summer before you're going sheep hunting, and I kind of gave you a little bit of my story, right? And I just, I like getting, get five or six or seven opinions, and, you know, you'll you'll start seeing a common theme of, oh, you know, 
I didn't take 12 pair of socks on my doll sheep hunt. I took two. I hung one up in the tent while I was gone that day. And yeah, it's a little gross the next day you put them back on. But you know what is better than none? And you you're, you don't want to be carrying 12 pairs of socks around for a 12-day sheep hunt. You, no. you, you don't want that heavy of a backpack. My my one thing that I was like, the it was it was the concession I made of like, this is going to be heavy, but it's going to be worth it. And I still stand by it was wet wipes. <laughs> If you're 12, over 12 days out anywhere, it's just worth it. Bring them. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it, it's, it is a game changer between sleeping well and not. So I take, uh, my, my big concession is I take two or three sticks of butter and I take some uh, instant Idaho potatoes. Oh my God. <laughs> and I put that on top of any of my mountain houses. You put a chunk of butter and some potatoes and mix it up. Mm, it's, it's worth it. Ooh. I'm I'm adding to my list now. And you get the carbs that you need to have the energy <laughs> to go back out again. <laughs> oh, you can't. I, uh, you Hunting can't. snacks are the best because you're like, I've just eaten three cupcakes and I'm okay with it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, you need the energy. So who cares, right? <laughs> we were telling ourselves that in Nebraska as we were like eating Snickers for breakfast. I was like, oh, it's cold. We'll burn it off. Oh, yeah, it's fine. I have a picture somewhere of uh, the guy that I went doll sheep hunting with. It was his birthday the week we were gone so i all week kept a snickers a full-size snickers in the bottom of my backpack we stuck a piece of grass in it and lit it on fire for his birthday cake (laughs) i've done a birthday oreo yeah i've done an oreo we just split it open and stick something in the frosting so you know to to recap on on at least women in the sports or young kids or people want to get interested you know ask but there's a ton of ton of info already out there there's forums and websites and neighbors and people and there's these organizations like Bo that you know if you're really intimidated just I I know those organizations you kind of just show up you sign up for a class or one of their seminars and you just have to show up I will do you know this one is a it's a little higher level in the sense of um, we at Wyoming Wildlife Federation and Artemis are looking at a partnership with the Darwin Ranch to do a women's archery weekend um, and have host a training and classes. I'm actually giving up a week of my archery season. Oof. Oof. Yeah. Good uh, for you. I, I'm saying that in that it is also in an area where I will have a tag and <laughs> be able to hunt and do this. But uh to to talk about and bring bring women that want to see what it is they don't even if you don't even want to hunt but you want to go along and you want to experience it that's part of the invitation if you want to learn to hunt um you know this is we're starting now for women that are probably already shooting bows and wanting to complete that into an archery elk thing and so we're working um darwin you know it's in the grovant it's in this incredible place uh and hoping to have sort of our first annual maybe a women's archery training and hunt um, that's mentored out of there. So we'll see what comes of that. But uh, they're all over. It's not just Wyoming. And um, Artemis is doing a lot of work to bring these together. Uh, We did a turkey hunt last year in Idaho where we had, I think it was like 15 women that came and almost all shot their first turkey ever. Um, Which turkey hunting is as close as you'll get to to elk elk hunting. hunting. It is. Exactly. Exactly. 
And then Nicole Qualtieri uh, runs this amazing thing called Deer Camp. Uh, I think they were actually out of Mile City, Montana. And she had a ton of women there, a lot of filled tags. It was just this camaraderie kind of, you know, and, and it's just this open door of like, hey, if you want to come learn, come learn. If you want to just come along, come along. You know, you don't have to commit to that if you're just figuring out what it is. And I think a lot of like taking someone out and showing what it is, especially as a bow hunter. Um, I took a couple women out this year that had never been and it was really fun. And they didn't, you know, they weren't hunting, but they just went along and we called and called an elk in and got to see that that close and got to see me not shoot an elk. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's a lot less intimidating instead of saying, hey, well, you got to go get a bow and get this gear and get this practice to say, you know what, why don't you just come, come and see what it's like, come see and go for one evening. And, you know, yeah, we might just call a cow in. We might just look at a nice sun sunset and call it a day. And you call and I can tell you I've, there's never been a time where you have called a big elk and had a big elk come in that that person does not transfer into a hunter. There's just, it just like, you can't be 15 yards from a screaming elk and not do anything else. <laughs> I think we all just like went there in our heads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just imagining big bull elk screaming and yeah, it's again, that's all I want to chase in September, but you know, back to, bringing people and women in, in these organizations. You know, I I heard a lot of good rapport on your annual life film. Is there going to be another film coming here shortly? Uh, on, like, through First Light? Or another one with just you? Or um, Yes, there's a couple of films in the works. Um, this weekend, or this, this hunt in Nebraska, is the first installment um, of what will likely be a longer film with Shelma. Um, and then... Well, it depends on if I get a caribou tag or not. I'm still waiting here. <laughs> but if there is, there's an archery caribou hunt in my future, hopefully. And we keep telling, you know, Annule has to have that second episode. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, let's uh, let's have you back after you get a couple films out, maybe after your caribou hunt. We'll talk some more legislation, talk some more gear, tips, and texts from Jess Johnson. And I would offer an invite if you are interested in the legislation stuff, we are doing a camo at the Capitol is what we're calling it. And it is a lobby training for the average hunter and angler. And we're doing it on February 25th. Um, and we do it every year. So if you can't make it this year, look for it next year. It's in Cheyenne. Unfortunately, it's during the week. That's the only time legislature's in. And uh, we start the day with a lobby training. We teach you about the life of a bill and how bills are created and move through our state Capitol and our House and Senate. And then we take you to the Capitol, and we give you a tour, and we teach you um, how to talk to your legislators. And then we cap it off with the legislative reception, which usually the governor is at and the director of Game and Fish, and you get to come and meet these people that are making these decisions, both at the high level and at the on-the-ground level, for our wildlife and our wild places here. So if you are wanting to know more, um, I recommend, and as a hunter, whether you're a new hunter or a hunter that's been around a while, your voices are really powerful at our state capitol. People listen there, um, and we need you. Yeah, definitely. We have to have a unified front. So we, you can get, get a hold of us at Radcast Outdoors on Facebook, right? Yep. How, can, how can somebody reach out and contact you? So you can look at WyomingWildlife.org, um, and we have the uh, everything to do with that training will be up on our website. You can find us also through Facebook or Instagram, um, or you can just contact me and you can find me. Uh, my email is jessiejohnson at wyomingwildlife.org. Very simple. J-E-S-S-I. 
No fancy spellings. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again for coming on, and we hope to get together again with you soon. Sounds great. All right, thanks, Jess. And now it's time for the Radcast Outdoors Recipe of the Week, made possible by High Mountain Seasonings, a Riverton business. Check out their latest seasonings at highmountainjerky.com. That's H-I-M-T-N-Jerky.com, H-I-M-T-N-Jerky.com, and use promo code HMS10, that's hms 10 for 10% off your next order, High Mountain Seasonings. All right, welcome to another Radcast recipe of the day. So I want to share with you a recipe that's near and dear to my heart, and I'm sure it will be for you. Because if you're like me, you love bacon. Bacon is one of my favorite foods, and I would guess most of you probably put it in the top five, if not the top two. Um, So one of the ways to make bacon, and you can use it, uh, you can make bacon with side side belly off of pork and lots of other different kinds of animals. I've, I have friends who've done it with elk. Um, one of the things that you can do, you take that, that belly and I get high mountain seasonings, bacon cure. They make a couple different varieties, but I just get the basic bacon cure and it is really easy to follow. They have a recipe, uh, you know, like a guideline on how much of the cure you need on each one based on the weight of the meat that you're doing. And it's very easy. You just measure it out based on how much meat you have. You sprinkle the meat completely with it. You put it in a plastic bowl in the fridge and you leave it in there for a week. And midway through that week that you're leaving it in there, the only thing you have to do is you have to go pull it out of the fridge, take the meat out, flip it over, put it back in the fridge. Pretty simple. Then when you're done, you take it out, you rinse it really good because you don't want to have all that cure, you know, making it too salty. And then you soak it in really cold water for about 45 minutes And then what I do is I take it out and I pat it dry really well. And then I take it out to my smoker and I cold smoke it for about 45 minutes with some applewood smoke. And then I throw it into the freezer just to get it a little bit firmed up. And then I run it through my meat slicer. And I will tell you, it is some of the best bacon that you'll ever eat. So go to High Mountain Seasonings. Um, check out, check them out on your, on our, on their website. Um, you put in code HMS10 for 10% off. And I will guarantee you it's some of the best bacon that you'll ever eat. So Patrick, before you log off here yesterday for breakfast, you know what I had? What's that? Bacon. See, I'm telling you it's in there. Do you know what I had for dinner? Bacon. Bacon. All right. And my favorite movie line quote of almost all time is grumpy old men. And he says, you know what I had for breakfast? Bacon. Bacon. You know what I had for lunch? bacon and i usually drink my dinner that's right all right guys go out there again hms 10 and get your bacon cure and give it a shot